chapter 5. As we have been for, uh, this is the fourth week now that we have been in this chapter. And today we want you to look at Blessed Are the Meek. Uh, let's just review quickly last week. We are learning that those under Christ's rule will find happiness and fulfillment in looking to him for all things and doing all things for him. And in that, they will benefit the most. And so, in self-denial, there is gain for self. And you kind of see that in each one of these, do we not? One of the many paradoxes in the kingdom of God is that the more we empty ourselves, and in, in today's case, the, the meeker we are, and we'll get into what that means, uh, the more we shall enjoy and be useful in the kingdom of God. We saw that mourning begins with sorrow over sin and repentance and faith, and so finding comfort in the salvation of Jesus Christ. That is the first and most profound way that we mourn. And then the effect of justification is that every mourning, every sorrow is turned to comfort and contentment. So as we gain the salvation that comes from Christ, when other sorrows take place in this life, and they will, we know that as we deal with those properly, we shall, that morning shall be turned to comfort also. And so morning can be seen in understanding that a large part of life is serious and troubling and that we must deal biblically with, with it in order to find ultimate comfort. So in a sense, the third way we dealt with this idea of morning is to understand that life has a certain aspect of seriousness and the more we understand that and and not get caught up in just trying to have a good time all the time, the more we deal properly with life, we shall be comforted. So part of being a Christian is realizing that our main pursuit is not trying to laugh or have a good time all the time, uh, at all costs. There is a time, as the uh, preacher tells us in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance. So that is what we dealt with last week. Today, then, we want to maybe sum up Jesus' description of those who are in the kingdom of God, which is what we are seeing here, that uh, they are aware of their unworthiness and absolute need of Christ for everything, which is what we saw in verse 3, in the first one, that it is okay that, it is okay that we understand our unworthiness because... Uh, in coming to Christ to have our needs met, we shall partake in the kingdom of God. So while we are born destitute of any good thing, we know that we shall have and have had, as we'll see a little later on, all good things given to us in Christ. And so they properly react to their sinfulness by repentance, and they find eternal comfort in the gospel. We should be burdened over the things that burden the Lord as Christians, and uh, in so doing, we shall be blessed, not by running from depression and fr- from depressing things, but by using them for the glory of the Lord. So we don't have to be happy all the time, but we are to rejoice all the time. We are to be rejoicing all the time. And as we talked about happy, having a sense, the idea of that circumstances around us sometimes are just not happy. Something, as, as we saw, it, it is proper to mourn, to be sad. But in that, we are to rejoice in the Lord at all, in all things. 
And so as we come to verse 5, we're told that the meek will inherit the earth. And uh, so that immediately, if you're, you know, think about it, that causes questions and, you know, that requires some explanation. We might wonder how the first century Jew, for instance, might have thought of success through meekness. Think about, as we're studying the uh, Old Testament, the Jews inherited land, uh, certainly in part from the Lord giving it to them in, in, in some ways. Remember, he, drove, he, put, he sent bees and wild bees to drive the people out, but we know that that didn't drive everybody out. They inherited the land through by possessing it, by fighting, by be, killing their enemies, not by being meek in that sense, right? So, um, through warfare. Yet, even the Old Testament... It, it, I would say hints, but it even does more than hint to let us know that God looks favorably on those who have a contrite heart. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2. So, there is, but the, you think about the Jew, there was a sense which they are to be meek and contrite before the Lord, but before their enemies they were not to be meek, but they were to, in, in many cases, uh, use the sword to conquer and so Jesus comes along and says that in this new kingdom, things are going to be different. Now, they, again, had to understand what that meant, just as we do. But it does put that contrast before us to remind us that the kingdom does not spread through us in, or in, in, in afflicting our will upon other people. It's done through meekness. It's done through servanthood. And that should be a big part in uh, helping us understand what the kingdom is, because if the kingdom is future yet, uh, and we will inherit it uh, through Christ coming and uh, destroying all the enemies, I think there's, it kind of loses a sense of, well, how does meekness come into play? But if we understand the kingdom to be now, and it's spread through the gospel, and through being a testimony of Jesus Christ, and I think being meek certainly makes more sense, at least. It makes it easier to understand. Jesus came as a meek and mild king, uh, as he uh, sets the example for us. It was a huge stumbling block for the Jew. Again, it, that was not something they were used to. Kings were the ones who won the battles for them, who led them into battle. And here Jesus comes and out to the kingdom in which he is going to uh, serve and suffer and die. And it was a, a stumbling block for the Jew. But of course we know that in that meekness, in that service to the Father, he has become the mighty conquering king. And so if we keep all this in the context of, of, of the kingdom, and, and again, kingdom and gospel is, is key in the New Testament. That's, that's, that's one of the reoccurring themes throughout. We could say then that the one who sees himself as poor and mourns over his condition has only one recourse, and that is to tr fully trust uh, the only one who has anything, any kind of power and strength, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is, it, by definition, for us to be saved, we must become meek before the Lord. A destitute beggar does not tend to be puffed up. So when we are full of pride, we can certainly say to ourselves, I am not remembering that I am poor. I'm not being poor in spirit, right? Uh, Sandra used to work for a company that would go and 
uh, free of charge, help the elderly, who, people who did not have anyone to take care of themselves, and they would offer some services to them. And it was interesting that as, as she worked there over a number of years that she could a lot of times tell those who were on some sort of welfare or assistance because when they would tell them the conditions about we can offer these services uh, under these conditions, she a lot of times would get an attitude that, well, no, I, I, I deserve that. You've you got to do it. I'm the one who's, I'll tell you what I want. And, and, and no, we're offering a free service. We'll tell, we're telling you what we can do, what we will not do. And then there were those who, you know, were used to taking care of themselves, who were not necessarily uh, getting everything from the government. They were just happy that somebody was helping them, meeting need that they couldn't meet themselves. And I think it's a, kind of an example of someone who's been touched by the grace of God. They understand that uh, without Christ, I am nothing. And that's meekness. We'll get into the definition a little bit later on. Instead of expecting, and again, I think that's, you got to consider what a lot of what we see in the church today, at least so-called church, from the health and wealth gospel, but not just that, is this idea that, that God is here for me, and that, um, you know, whatever I want, I should be able to get. So we want to go a little further in this because there is a, all these, as we've said, are continuous action verbs that are stating how we are to live our lives. They are not telling us what we uh, will be. They are telling us what we are now. And so in a more general sense, we know that the gospel of the cross is offensive because it humbles the pride of man. We are born proud. That's what sin is. Sin is pride. At its essence, sin always comes down to pride. I will do what I want to do. I deserve something. But the gospel forces us to see Christ as Lord, and that we are no longer the center of the universe, but the Lord is. We are here for him. And so it's impossible to uh, act upon the gospel without a certain measure of meekness. So Christ has set the example in life by living in the the greatest sense of humility, the greatest example of humility, and yet in that accomplishing the greatest work in salvation. So it's no surprise then that those who live by faith in the fashion that he did must total, uh, by total trust in the wisdom and power of God will do all things for the glory of God because uh, we understand that Without him, we have not just no power, no righteousness, but we have no meaning to life. We have no future hope apart from the Lord. And so when we do all things for the glory of the Lord, we in fact will inherit or gain or enjoy the kingdom of God. In this case, it's, it's the word is changed from the kingdom to the earth, and that will bring a whole another little study that we'll talk about here in just a moment, what that actually means. But right now we're concentrating on meekness in itself. We can also imagine that while Jesus went around preaching such a message, that those who are waiting for a Savior to come and to free them through force from Rome and their physical enemies, since something was terribly wrong. And we see this... Uh, in two different 
uh, different kinds of people in the New Testament, the zealots who were the political people who were trying to overthrow Rome physically, the zealots are the ones who basically took over Jerusalem and by 70 AD brought destruction upon themselves because they would not uh, submit to Rome. Judas, who, whose sympathy at least was a zealot, I don't know if he was actually part, you know, in the party of zealots, but his sympathy was there. And I think what led to his betrayal of Jesus is once he began to realize that Jesus is not going to deliver them from Rome. In fact, he sees him, uh, you know, he, he leads to his actually being arrested by, by the Romans. Uh, that's, I think that's why he does that because he had become disillusioned. The kingdom was not what he thought it was going to be. So they, the, the, the preaching of Jesus did not go well with a lot of the Jews at that time, which is pretty obvious. And so it's, again, a similar way to the gospel that is received so often today, when one begins to see that the gospel is about giving up your life for Christ's life, and your will for his will, they, they balk. As long as salvation is me getting out of hell and having a better life now, it's all good. But but whenever we realize, no, it's it's now you become the slave to Christ, well, no, that's not what I was looking for. As long as they can walk an aisle, then uh, they're, they're good. But, any, but anything more than that, anything more than I've got to give my life to the Lord is legalism and, and we want no part of it. But also, like in Jesus' day, it is because they don't recognize who the real enemy is. See, the, the zealots' problem in the first century, or in that those few centuries there, was that they, in their mind, the Jews are supposed to have their own kingdom, and they're not to have any anybody over them. And so in their mind, it was Rome was their enemy. And, and, and if they had really understood that, well, no, your real enemy is the sin within you, the sin that's going to condemn you, the sin that's going to send you to hell, then they would be a lot, much more concerned and content having that enemy destroyed uh, and not Rome. And, and that's the problem. Today, people want a gospel that seeks, speaks to poverty, sickness, obscurity, oppressive governments, um, afflictions of all kinds, certainly. But Jesus said that to such things we have been called. And that the only thing that we are redeemed from is the penalty and power of sin. And eventually death. That's a real enemy. And, and, and we've been redeemed so those things no longer have power over us. Our redemption has already started and we know that eventually we'll have the redemption of our bodies. I don't, need, I don't need to be redeemed. You have to say that we, for instance, lived in China and we lived under the most oppressive of governments. It would be wonderful if God would overthrow that government by whatever means he saw fit to and bring freedom and, and certainly freedom of religion there. But at the end of the day, it, it's not, it doesn't matter because they still serve the Lord and earn reward and look forward to the same uh, future that we do, right? And that's what's important. Not whether they live under a repressive government or not. Doesn't mean that that's good. Doesn't mean that those that the people who oppress people won't suffer for that. We should try to remove oppression when we can. But we understand at that 
on the scheme of things, a priority, that's not top priority. <clears throat> All these other things are the effects of sin. And by and large, the only real relief from this will come when Christ comes back. It's not going to come before. So if sin is the en enemy that can destroy both body and soul forever, as Jesus Christ in the Bible teaches, then that's what we need to be delivered from. So if God then saves us and gives us the power to overcome sin, then, obviously, having said all that, meekness is the evidence that we have received this gift of God. God must give us a humble heart that we might trust in him. And if we have a humble heart, we will always have a humble heart. And if God regenerates us and gives us a new heart that we might repent and trust in the Lord, he doesn't take it away after we get saved and says, now I don't care how you live. We've been changed. As Paul says, we're, we're new creatures. Now the old man still remains and, and causes us a lot of trouble from time to time, for sure. You know, and we all know, if you're anything like me, you know that pride is always beneath the surface, just wanting to get its way whenever it can. But in our hearts, we know better. It, it pains us to see that remaining pride. Now, I've been using the terms meekness and humbleness kind of interchangeably here, but let's just define meekness so we don't get too far ahead of ourselves to understand what we're talking about. Literally, the, the term meek means mild or soft, and when used for human traits, it means to have a gentle spirit, to be submissive, quiet, tender-hearted, and I think that's kind of how we would assume it. But what we want to see here is that we are first talking about meekness towards the Lord, to, to be humble before Him, to be soft towards His will. Meekness, as we're going to see here, means that sometimes we will not get along with people in the world. And so let's just see some examples of that. Uh, over in Second uh, Corinthians 10, 1, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. Now, he's writing a letter to them. He's, he's writing a letter. Second uh, Corinthians is about the super apostles who were trying to say Paul's not a credible apostle and that we are, and we're trying to discredit him. And so, and, and just like we saw in First Corinthians when he wrote concerning that one who was sleeping with his father's wife, he has to get onto them for sin and for doing wrong or to thinking wrong, right? So he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on, showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And so you see here that, and he says, in my letters I am bold, because he's speaking the word of God often in these letters that were inspired. He's saying, he, he's calling sin, sin. He's, he's calling on them to repent. He's saying some difficult things. He says, and you know that when I'm with you, I'm, I, I try to be very meek. I try to, 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 I'm soft-spoken. I try, I, I'm, I'm meek in that sense. And, but then when he's away and he's writing these letters, they seem to, he seems to take on a little bit different personality. And perhaps we can understand that. He, 
you know, because he has to. But, um, but you see here, he says that if I have to, if you guys won't repent, then if I have to come in my apostolic authority, I'll come and if I have to clean house or what, do what I have to do, I'll do it. So, his meekness, first of all, was, uh, before the Lord. That I have to obey him. I, I have submitted to him. He, he gives me the marching orders. And while I want to, as I, as, as you've seen, when I'm around you, I try to be loving and I don't try to enforce my will. I try to, to, uh, be tender hearted. Yet, because I am first meek to the Lord, sometimes it means I might have to be hard. I might have to do some things that are a little bit rougher. So, understand meekness. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment, but meekness means that we are submissive, first of all, to Christ. It doesn't mean that I am therefore submissive to everybody I meet. Sometimes it means that, but not always, because it must always coincide with serving the Lord. Um, to understand Christian meekness, we need to see these traits as reflecting our relationship to Christ first before those around us. We are to be submissive to Christ, and this will define how we are meek before the world, before one another. So, the meek in Christ don't automatically become doormats to everybody. And we have to understand that, because it first means uh, submitting to His will, and then it, it, it goes from there. Uh, Job 5.11, he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Now, when the Lord exposes my spiritual uh, depravity, my, my poor, being poor in spirit, and I humble myself before the Lord and I realize that I am nothing but a, a sinner that is saved by grace, it's going to automatically have the effect that when I'm before you, I don't get too full of myself. Because I know that I'm no better than you. And I don't deserve anything more than you, right? So it's going to create a meekness with one another. And and, um, and, and here we see uh, Job um, that uh, and as he, we learn here in Job, that he sets on high those who are lowly. The, the kingdom of God, and the, the one who is faithful in the kingdom of God, is a servant. Psalm 25, 9. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. The proud aren't following him anyway, so you can't teach them anything. You can't lead them in any good things, because they're too busy doing what they want to do, right? And then uh, Titus 3, 1, a New Testament verse, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. I mean, that certainly is a characteristic of being meek, right? To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Again, we're only reflecting the grace of God uh, that he's shown us. But at the same time, we know that we can't always be submissive to the government. It's not a blanket state, statement saying that you've got to, whatever the government tells you to do, you've got to just be meek and do it. Because the, the New Testament Christian, in Paul's day, Christianity was, if it was known for anything, it was known for disobeying the government when it came to certain things, right? So, to be obedient, but uh, 
doesn't mean we have to obey everybody and have all things. And so sometimes uh, we can't be gentle. As Paul said, sometimes you, we've got to stand up and we've got to be a little harsh or, you know, tough love, maybe as we call it. So there's always a temperance to what he's saying there. And, and we need to understand that because when we talk about meekness, it doesn't mean that you're a doormat, that you have to do whatever you have to do to get along with people. Sometimes we have to stand up for the Lord. We always should be able to do it lovingly and to do it without being proud, but to do it nonetheless. So Titus reminds us that someone who does off the glory of God will allow himself to be mistreated, to be used for others. And so meekness certainly transforms the way that we live in this world. But, Meekness doesn't mean weakness. I'm sure you've heard that before. And that's because our strength is in the Lord. So we're not weak. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And the world tends to see meekness as weakness. That the Greek culture and the Roman culture after it. And if you didn't stand up for yourself and exercise some measure of boldness and pride, they considered you to not be worth the time or trouble. The word meekness is, was used for a horse who had been broken uh, so that it became useful for its master. I think that kind of gets to the heart of what we're talking about here. We use the word tamed, right? You have a wild horse that basically does whatever it wants to do. And you have a tamed horse who becomes a servant. It's like you have people who we sometimes describe as wild. It's like, you, you know, they're just doing whatever they want to do and you can't do much with them. They're not listening to anybody. But then you got people who are meek, who are not tamed in the sense that we usually refer to that as an animal, but who who understand that there's other things that they're here for to serve. And so we might be weak in the flesh, weak in power, weak in fame, weak compared to others, but if we have the power of God, we can serve and do great things for the Lord. And, you know, you might say to yourself, well, this idea of being weak, I happen to have a lot of money, and I have a lot of power. I have a lot of fame. I'm, I'm physically strong. I'm quite gifted. And all those things might be true. I'm sure there are Christians who could say that in a lot of ways, right? But it's okay because if, if you understand, as we talk about, uh, being a good steward, that all those gifts of God are to be used to serve him and to serve one another, to be used in the kingdom of God, then you can be meek and, and have some of the great gifts, be a, a great person in, in many ways, right? Because you're like that tamed horse. You have these great powers, you might say, these great gifts, but they're only going to be used to serve and honor the Lord. And so we're born without this kind of meekness. But when out of control destroys, it doesn't serve any purpose. You know, we, we can harness when to do good things, but, it, but it's got to be harnessed, which is a, a kind of a, a term we use for a tamed horse in a sense, right? Medicine that's too strong kills. Emotions that are out of control wrecks lives. So they be, it, it's like that. It's, that unbroken horse, that it becomes useless. 
And so a man or woman who's bent on having his or her way is of no use in the kingdom of God. Submission or meekness then is the key. All these other things will mean nothing if we don't also have a meek and tender spirit who understands who we are. And that's why Jesus goes on to say that the last shall be first. He's not talking about some kind of an order, numerical order or something. But those who put themselves last are the ones who are most um, reflecting the the, uh, nature of Christ. It will be great in the kingdom. Um, Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, This is the uh, verses I had Jeff read in, in relation to our text today. Hebrews chapter 10, I want to see probably one of the great examples of meekness in all of the Bible. Hebrews 10, let's begin reading in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, and let's just you know, read into that everything that we know is there. When one is enlightened to salvation, one is uh, given a new nature. One's heart has been regenerated, right? So, all this, but when you have, when you've been enlightened, you now all of a sudden understand something you didn't understand before, right? So you endure a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and not just that, because sometimes by being, by, by going and visiting somebody in prison, the authorities realized, well, hey, you're probably one of them. And that brought persecution upon you. And so it was a big or, big deal to decide whether you were going to visit a Christian in prison because they in prison because of that. So it says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So there's the action. There's the meekness. Why? Since, this is the reason, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So that light of the gospel that lets us know what we have in Christ Jesus gives me the opportunity to say no now. And if it means I lose all my worldly possessions, I know that at the end of the day that matters little next to glory. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have needed of endurance, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet, and then he quotes uh, the Old Testament, yet a little while, and the coming will come again and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, and this is why this is important, while this is not just me standing up here suggesting that we be meek, like it's, well, you know, it doesn't matter a whole lot, but you'd be better off if you were meek. He who shrinks back, he who will hold on to this world at all costs and will, and will not humble themselves before me, my soul has no pleasure in them. And there's just no good consequence to that. That's only bad, right? Well, he says, of course, true Christians, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. And, of course, he's he's writing this letter to Jews who were being told, we need to go back to the law. 
you can have Christ, but you've also got to be circumcised. It's Christ plus stuff. And he says that the end, that's not going to end well. But, but what a great definition of meekness. This is what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in our lives. He then goes on, think about it, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, what's that chapter about? We call it the great chapter of the great hall of fame of faith, right? These All these examples of, of faith. Well, think about it. It describes a truly meek. Those who obey the Lord regardless. Now, some of them, you know, Samson's mentioned there, Gideon, some of these were warriors who, who killed the enemy. They were not being, you can't be meek in warfare. You know, meekness, you're going to lose. Uh, it was a patent who said that, uh, war is this, you, you kill the enemy, or that kills you. That's the only way you win war, right? But, but what is he saying here? Well, they, in that case, that was God's will for them to kill those people, or whatever it is they were doing. But they all were in their own way, that by faith, they were living by faith, they were doing the Lord's will, and in many cases in, in that chapter, they, they suffered greatly. Great loss, loss of their life. But that's the example, because that's what meekness does. It says, I will obey the Lord in all things and accept the consequences. So to understand the difference in why they were allowed to, in a sin, in an unmeek way, kill, it, 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 under certain conditions, we have to again understand, define the enemy in the New Testament sense. Under the old covenant, physical enemies sometimes had to be killed. But we we understand that is a picture of our spiritual our spiritual enemies and our spiritual warfare. Now we we can make sense out of it because that's the Lord still tells us to kill our enemies, but our enemies are within. Our enemies that sin is within us. And we talked about this uh, last week. You know, in the New Testament, we're to do the dying. I don't, I don't kill because my enemies aren't without. My enemies are within. It's killing this, the sin within me. That's what dying to self is all about. That's why when we see the pride and arrogance in our hearts, that it, it should uh, scare us. And so meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not cowardness. And as we'll see here in a moment, meekness is not a lack of conviction. Again, we're, we're not doormats. It takes more strength to stand up against the world and suffer wrong than to go with it, right? It's harder to, to say no to self and to not go along with whatever people want you to do and to suffer the the consequences. Or it, it's hard it's hard uh, hard to do that than to retaliate. You know, a, a meek person doesn't retaliate, but that's what we want to do in the flesh. But controlling your emotions for the Lord's sake is is a more, much more difficult. So being meek is not being a coward by any stretch. If you, if you remember, um, when we were teenagers, some of you still are teenagers, so you'll perhaps understand what I'm saying here more. Even, but I think we all can remember very well that if, if teenagers have a problem, it's peer pressure, right? Now, I think those who are homeschooled don't probably struggle with it in the same degree that if you go to public school especially or even private schools a teenager probably struggles as much as anything with wanting to be accepted by his peers 
as we get older, we still struggle with it in different ways at different times. But when you become an adult and you, you get a, a little age behind you, you begin to realize, and, and, for, and you don't spend eight hours a day with your peers, you can stand up a little bit better. And you can say no, because you can go find other friends and, and, and so forth, right? But but uh, a teenager struggles with that because it's it's much easier to compromise than it is to stand up against those around you and be made fun of and to be ostracized. And so you might say they're being meek, but not to Christ, but to their own pride and selfishness because I will not be made fun of. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get along with somebody. So they're meek, but to the wrong one. But remember, Hebrews says the world is not worthy of those that they list in chapter 11. The world is not worthy of any of them. And so what happens as we grow in the Lord is we begin to realize, you know what? It's much more important that I'm pleasing the Lord than uh, the people that I'm working with or I go to school with. Um, And even though it's no fun to be ostracized and made fun of, um, I'd rather be except here the well done thou good and faithful servant and go to heaven than a not, right? And, and that takes spiritual maturity and it takes a growth and understanding. And so meekness is not a coward because if, 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 if again, if you are willing to stand up before your peers and take the abuse to be uh, loyal to Christ, that takes much more strength to do that than to go along with the flow, right? And so, therefore, meekness is not a lack of conviction. It does not mean that we just go along with the crowd and never raise objections. One can be meek in the gospel sense, yet stand against the world. Uh, maybe even stand against your brothers and sisters in Christ if there's something that are wanting to do wrong. And you say, no, you know, that's wrong, and, and, and we need to stop and, and to think about this. You can still be meek. And yet, sometimes you have to live by your convictions, or you always have to, but it, you, you would have to stand against others. And if, again, think of Jesus. It means we will stand to defend God's honor and not our own. The Bible says that he opened not his mouth when it came to doing his Father's will. And we can do no better. Now, Jesus opened his mouth quite a bit while he was in his ministry, but he when it came time for him to die, he did not try to get out of it. He let them do what they had to do. As the Lord of glory, he could have put a stop to the beatings and all that they were doing, but he opened not his mouth because that was the Father's will for him. And that's the greatest example of meekness that I know of. Remember Genesis 3, 5-9, when Abraham... And Lot were getting too big. They were going to separate. And what does Abraham do? Lot, you take whatever land you want. He, he gladly gave up his right, really, as the older one and the leader. And he says, go where you want to go. And Lot took the best. Didn't think anything about it. I mean, it was immediate. I'll take this. <laughs> and, of course, he paid the price. Because not sometimes but selfishness doesn't always turn out very good, right? And so harmony in the household and testimony are uh, much more important than personal rights. It is getting along with the saints of God 
having peace is much more important than us pushing our rights upon other people, and that's what meekness is. And that's the, the key to a harmonious church, a harmonious home, a society. Um, of course, society's never going to learn this, really, but um, we, we know as Christians. All right, so let's finish with this thought. The meek shall, you know, we know, we've talked about what being meek is, but what does it mean shall inherit the earth? Um, probably when we read this, we tend to think of the eternal state. Uh, as an amillennialist, I, I think that primarily, or at least an obvious way that all these are going to be seen in, in fully and finally is in the eternal state. In the new heavens and the new earth, we shall inherit that. The post-millennialist uh, would, you know, very similar to an amillennialist, but they would say, well, the church is someday going to dominate the earth and we'll, we'll inherit the earth then. And, you know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, we know that the dispensationist thinks that, or the premillennialist thinks that that's speaking of the future kingdom, that when Christ comes back and sets up a kingdom and we'll inherit it then. So you got some different ways of understanding that, but I think there's a little bit, maybe a more practical way to understand it than all, all those. Um, because each of these Beatitudes seem to have a present benefit with it. You know, verse 3 speaks of enjoying the present kingdom, for it is at hand. Notice verse 6, where he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we certainly understand that's something that we can enjoy now, not just in glory, right? So, what does it mean? Well, first of all, the word... It, it, it can be translated land. It doesn't necessarily have to refer to the earth. Now, it, it can. It, it, it technically, literally means soil. And we sometimes refer to the earth, or, you know, the earth is, or the dirt as being the earth and so forth. So it certainly, by extension, can be translated earth, but it, it literally means land. I think that's interesting because over in Ephesians 6, 1, now Paul is going to quote from the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, and he says, Children, obey your parents of the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise. And the promise is that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And it's the same word that's translated earth here. I think the KJV translates it earth there, but the ESV translates it there, land. And the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's land, it's not earth. And you say, well, why is that? Well, it's because the, the, the point is not that you will live a long life if you obey your parents and, and so forth, but that you would be, continue to live in the land in Canaan because Canaan is seen as the inheritance. The, the, the Jews were trying to hold on to living in the land. And so it's a promise of continuing in the land of, if you keep the covenant and if you obey uh, this commandment that would go a long way, of course, in uh, staying in the land. I think that's something to think about. Not a long life, but uh, their inheritance in the land. And so... We could say, perhaps, that Jesus is saying that the meek shall inherit the land. The question for me is whether there is a way for us to enjoy an inheritance now. Is he 
making reference to the Old Testament and saying that the meek shall inherit the inheritance, shall inherit what the covenant was to bring them all along. Just as in the Old Testament, by obeying the Lord, you would, you would continue to enjoy the inheritance. So, as we obey the Lord, we inherit, we, we enjoy the inheritance that we have in Christ. And I think there's a, a proper way to understand it like this. If we are in the kingdom, are we dwelling in Emmanuel's land? You know, we sing that song, Emmanuel's land, and the songwriter clearly is talking about now. We live in Emmanuel's land. We're, we're living in the inheritance that we have in Christ. Now, there's a lot more to come, but we begin to enjoy living in the, in the kingdom now when the power of sin has been broken. And there's, there's great promises now. And, and the idea is, are we utilizing it as we should? Remember this verse in 1 Corinthians 3. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. All things, right now, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. Not just the future, but life now is ours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. When we, when we have lives that are in submission to God's will, we begin to live life as man was created to live life to start with. See, if, if we're saved, if we know Christ and we're, we have the Holy Spirit, we are beginning to enjoy our inheritance now. <clears throat> and so instead of, say, well, you know, give me an example. Well, instead of every material thing being our master as it is you know, in the lost person, in one way or another, we now are using all things for him. So we are using our life, our life in the land, our life in Christ, to serve him instead of ourselves. So just as Adam was given dominion over all things, but sin turns all that on its head, Christ has given us all things back, some of it future yet, but we... It started that he's given us all things. We have all things in Christ so that we can begin to use life as it was originally intended to be used. And so, Romans 5.17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So our reigning has begun. We're now reigning over life. We're now reigning over sin. Not perfectly, but we're beginning to to exercise our dominion as we were supposed to in Adam. Romans 6, 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's how it was to make you obey its passions. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. And you have, Revelation 5, jump into Revelation 5.10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, I don't think there's any question that there is a future reigning in glory, and, and, and certainly in the heaven, new heavens and the new earth, but, I, I, but why would we assume that that reigning has not begun already? And if you remember, uh, when we went through Revelation, 
uh, chapter 12, verse 17 says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So this is something that has begun. And then we get to the end there in chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And again, as we went through there, we, we tried to show that that thousand years uh, is a, a, a term uh, for a long time, that it has begun, Satan has been bound, and we have begun to reign in the gospel and, the, and being converted. And we are reigning with him now during the millennium, we are in that millennium, millennium reign. Right now. So I know there's a lot there, but in other words, when I read that, I don't want us to think, well, boys, one of these days will inherit the earth. Because you, if you're in Christ, you've already started to inherit those things. It's, it's not future. Because if it's just future, then you don't have it yet. But if you're saved, you've been given the nature of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. This means we will be full of Christ and not ourselves. We will be used for his service. We have inherited the kingdom, so we are reigning over this life. This life no longer reigns over us. Now again, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a back and forth as we have remaining sin. But if you are, if you haven't started to reign with Christ at this point, then I would say you don't know Christ. So key to living in this kingdom is meekness. Only the meek will take their cues from the word of God and submit to the king. Just as a horse submits to the reins of his rider, so we have submitted in the gospel to the reins of Christ. Rebels don't serve the king, they disrupt the kingdom. Living for self only disrupts the kingdom of God. It will disrupt your life, it will take away your joy, you will not be able to enjoy the benefits of Christ's rule. Until you come into submission with him. And so I close with this verse. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. There's meekness. In all your ways acknowledge him. Meekness. And he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Meekness. Fear the Lord. Meekness. And turn away from evil. Meekness. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment. To your bones. And I don't think that is a reference to eternity. <laughs> That's a reference to what happens when Christ gets hold of us and changes us and we start to put our life in order by the power of the Holy Spirit. Alright? We'll stop there today. And yeah. Alright. Thank you. Have a good week.